Hi, I'm Ariane and welcome to Change Nation. If you're struggling with some sort of a health diagnosis or maybe some sort of emotional issue, this interview is definitely for you. We are very lucky today to have a world-renowned physician, David Simon, with us. He is an expert really in the mind, body, health and emotional connection between disease. Amongst many other things, he's had several books be published in dozens of languages. He also runs Deepak Chopra Center. And we're thrilled to have him today to really talk about what is the connection between emotion, health, disease. I know a lot of us are struggling with that today. So David, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to our show. Well, thank you for having me. David, for people who don't know really about your background or, or how you came to be this world-renowned physician, Tell us a little bit about how it all started for you, and then also how you came to write this book that we're going to talk about. Sure. Well, in my culture of origin, it was determined that a fetus became a human being when it graduated from medical school. <laughs> so I knew from a very early age that I was going to be a doctor. Um, I studied anthropology in my undergraduate days and actually focused on shamanism. In between undergraduate and medical school, I became a yoga and meditation teacher. So when I started medical school, I had a certain perspective on what being a doctor was about. I knew about transcendence, about which doctors. But when I entered medical school, I realized that my worldview was very different from the prevailing one. And it took me a while to figure it out. But basically, the conventional medical model says that people, human beings, are biochemical bags, you know, molecular machines. So if there's something wrong with a person, you manipulate the molecules. If you're having heartburn, it's not because you're stressed out at work, it's because you're producing too many hydrochloric acid molecules, so here's a proton pump inhibitor. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, it's not because you're worried about your kids, you're not producing enough GABA, so here's some Ambien or Restoril. And if you're depressed, it's not because your core relationships are not loving or you haven't figured out your meaning and purpose in life, it's because you're not producing enough serotonin, so here's some Prozac or Zoloft. So that's the model that prevails, but really from before I started medical school, I always suspected that there was a story behind illness and that if we were willing to reveal that story, we could affect people on multiple levels, improving their psychological and their physical health. So give us some examples for people right off the bat of what you see the emotion connected to a certain condition. So whether it's obesity, whether it's depression, whether it's migraines, whether it's irritable bowel syndrome. Is there a connection? Like, can you really sort of go, you know, anger equals this symptom or heartbreak equals this symptom? Well, all those conditions that you mentioned and probably every condition that a person can think about has an emotional component to it. And sometimes the emotional component is core. And I think things like irritable bowel syndrome or fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain disorder, or chronic fatigue. These are all almost certainly core emotional problems that express themselves physically. Then there are you know, really hardcore physical problems, often genetic, certain types of cancer and, and autoimmune diseases. But still, we know that the emotional component has a profound effect on that physical condition. In fact, there's just a really interesting and kind of sad study that was published where they looked at people admitted to um, a Kaiser Hospital in San Diego with an autoimmune disease. These included everything from multiple sclerosis to rheumatoid arthritis to actually certain types of diabetes, which are autoimmune diseases. 
and then they ask these people to fill out a detailed questionnaire about their childhood. And it turns out that if you had a traumatic childhood, meaning if you were the subject of emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, if your parents were violent towards each other, if there was drug abuse in the household, or if there was a divorce at an early age, for each one of these episodes, you had a 20% higher risk of being admitted with one of these immune disorders. So there's this very close connection between what's happening in our minds, in our emotional hearts, the neurochemistry, and really the rest of the physiology. Can we get really specific? So if we go through some of the more classic conditions that people are experiencing right now, can you sort of say, you know, obesity, I really identify it with this, migraines, I identify it with this? Well, there's common themes, but there's also very specific stories. So, you know, obesity is a common problem in our, in our society. And the reason that it is so common is that when a person's life otherwise seems out of control, controlling what you put in through your mouth gives you some sense of, of ability to influence your environment. So it's quite common with people who have had, say, child sexual abuse to have obesity or eating disorders when they grow, get older because they didn't feel control of their boundaries and that manifests later on as um, needing to be excessive in their way of monitoring their boundaries. You know, if you want to look at the immune system, you could say that, that a healthy immune system responds appropriately to a challenge. But if the immune system is overly aggressive, then you get allergies, or if it's directed internally, you can get an autoimmune disease. So you could make some correlation that people who are overly aggressive, that every time they feel some threat, they get irritable, they get angry, they lose their temper, they have a slight increased risk of having one of these aggressive autoimmune diseases. On the other hand, there are certain immune disorders that uh, represent kind of a laziness or an exhaustion of the immune system. So if you get um, an infection or you get cancer, it's really a reflection of the fact that your immune system has not been able to recognize a potential threat. And again, there's some association with people who have trouble expressing their feelings, who always stuff those feelings internally, who were never allowed to really have a voice in their relationships. So I'd like to think it was as simple as, say, Louise Hay said, that for every disorder there's a specific emotional pattern. It hasn't been my experience that it's that simple, but clearly there's always a story. And if you allow people to access that story and tell that story, that's actually the first stage of healing. Do you see disease in the body show up from people who are chronically dishonest, who lie all the time? Have you been able to see a connection between lying and disease? That's a really interesting question. I just find this whole country is about dishonesty and lack of character and lack of integrity. Right, and, and the reason for that is that from a very early age, children were punished for telling the truth. So if you hit your baseball through the window and, and people say, who, who hit that baseball? If you actually admit it, you're the one who got punished. It really carries through our entire society. So if, if you commit a crime, your lawyers immediately tell you, plead not guilty and, and fight it because in the end, you'll have less of a punishment than if you come out right at the beginning and say, okay, I admitted I did something wrong. And it's particularly true in childhood where every family wants to project this image of everything being perfect, even though most families are fairly dysfunctional. And so anytime a child tries to reach out to describe what's going on, they get punished. So it would be, it, I would say that since everybody's really good at lying, because it's become a um, life protective mechanism, you could say that perhaps on some level not 
acknowledging the deep truth in people's lives is, is the source of all illness. In fact, what, what I've come to realize is that when, when you recognize pretty early that telling the truth had consequences, then you began to tell a story around that. And then pretty soon you were telling a story to protect the story, and then another story to protect the story. And for so many people, their whole life is this kind of ever, never-ending story to not deal with the authentic truth. I mean, we see it right now in what's being revealed with Michael Jackson, that the whole story on some level is just one lie being covered up with another story with being covered up with another story. Is there a connection between people staying in a bad relationship, a bad job, and having that manifest in their physical body? Yes, and I think that men and women express it differently. So when, when men stay in something bad, it's usually because they feel responsible, but they also sense that no one is acknowledging their contribution. And that often expresses itself as a heart attack. It's very common for uh, you know, a, a man in their 50s to have a heart attack. And when you say, why did you get this heart attack? They're not going to tell you, oh, it's because my LDL cholesterol was too high or my, you know, my blood pressure was elevated. They're going to say, oh, because I've been in a job that wasn't rewarding me or I had a family that wasn't appreciating me. So I think that those, those um, disorders often reflect this underlying sense of lack of appreciation. And with women, I think that the lack of appreciation shows up in a variety of different forms. One is in the, dig the digestive system. So when a woman can't stomach something anymore, rather than actually expressing it, it'll often translate into irritable bowel. Um, another thing that'll happen is when a woman uh, can't handle the uh, setting healthy boundaries in a relationship, that'll manifest as chronic pain. Literally the old story of not tonight, dear, I have a headache or a backache or a neckache or some other reason which gives them the, the space to um, protect themselves. So again, it's not always that simple, but everybody knows in their own mind or everyone has a story in their own mind, what is it that led to this problem? And, and when you give people the safety to start telling that story, it's amazing how quickly their whole psychology can change and literally their physiology will change. David, fascinating. We're going to take a really quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk specifically about your book. I know there's some steps that people can take to really look at their own healing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Change Nation. I'm here with Dr. David Simon. David, we have looked at different connections between emotion and physical health. I'm curious with all the changes that people are going on right now, what are ways to strengthen ourselves physically, emotionally, our immune system? How can we be part of the group of people that doesn't get sick? Well, everybody knows the right things we're all supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to get to bed on time, we're supposed to not smoke or drink, use drugs, we're supposed to eat healthy, we're supposed to exercise regularly. And it's my experience that everybody knows that. We've known that since high school health class. But we also know that most people don't follow those practices. And I think that before we can make those shifts, we have to really ask ourselves a core question, which is, what am I carrying with me from my past that's no longer serving me in my present? And just literally closing our eyes and asking that question and seeing if something comes into our awareness and then taking steps to whatever we need to do to release that misunderstanding, that misbelief, that negative self-messaging, 
And then the second question is to ask, what am I holding myself back from? That if I allowed myself to ingest it, it would bring me to a higher level of well-being. And so it's our experience, that it's my experience and our experience at the Chopra Center, that, that until people can really say, I'm free from my past, it becomes difficult to consistently move forward into the healthier lifestyle because there's another voice that is sabotaging, saying, you don't deserve to be, lose that weight, you don't deserve to be that healthy, you don't deserve to um, feel that vital or creative. But assuming that you have gotten to that place, then you know, if I had to say one thing that is the most helpful to bring people into a state of balance, it's to take time every day to quiet, quiet the mind and go inside in meditation that by quieting down that internal dialogue that repeats your um, self-talk all the time, it actually allows you to consider that there's some new creative opportunities that may be different than what you've been previously engaging in. And so, you know, at the Chopra Center and all of our work, uh, we think that meditation is core, that if we can just get people to quiet down, then all the other choices they're trying to make, be it stop smoking, stop drinking, lose weight, exercise, stop fighting with their spouses, engage in behaviors that they think will bring them more abundance. What do you say to people who tried to meditate? Like who are listening to this, watching this, going, I try to meditate, so not my thing, I'm terrible at it, I quit. Yeah, well, first of all, trying is exactly the opposite of meditation, so stop trying. You know, we, I often say, um, people say, oh, I can't concentrate in my meditation. I say, that's good because we're not running a concentration camp here. We're running an expansion camp. But, you know, for some people whose bodies are filled with lots of energy, sitting down quietly is not the first step. So that's where some more movement meditation can be helpful. It could be kind of just free-flowing dance. It could be Tai Chi. It could be yoga. But something where it's not goal-oriented. That's, that's the shift. Instead of doing something to accomplish something, meditation is doing something to reduce the level of activity so that we can become a human being again as opposed to what everybody else is doing, which is to be a human doing. David, your book, Free to Love, Free to Heal, what does love have to do with health or disease at this point? Yeah, everything. Um, you know, it's interesting, Michael Crichton, the, the novelist, when he was a medical student, he was walking around the uh, cardiology wards and he was asking patients late at night, you know, what do you think caused your heart attack? And every person on some level or another said that their heart attack was a physical reflection of not feeling loved in some way. And we know that love is the most powerful force in the universe. It makes us safe, it brings us wholeness, it activates healing chemistry, it opens up creativity, it quiets down turbulence in the mind, uh, and it's, it's really the essence of healing, it's the essence of life, and even it's the essence of whatever happens beyond life. You know, as I take care of people at all stages of life, and including people who die, and when people are dying, it's very rare to hear someone say, my only regret is I didn't go to the office more often on the weekends. You know, it's, it's always some story about love. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have explored more things with my friends. So love is the essence of this experience. How do you feel parents impact our health later on in life, our decisions, our choices? What would you tell parents who are listening to this, watching you? What must they do? What must they not do? Yeah, you know, we're not 
we're not that good at parenting in this society. I think part of it is um, my 11-year-old uh, my daughter, uh, who just finished the fifth grade, uh, has a classmate who just got her period. So she's the first girl in her class who got her period. And I was thinking, this is crazy. Get an 11-year-old girl together with a 12-year-old boy, and in 10 minutes, or actually in the case of a boy, 10 seconds, they can make a baby. So biologically, we're equipped to have children way before we're emotionally equipped, and it shows. You know, most people were raised by amateurs learning on the job who hadn't really learned how to set their own boundaries, and yet they're responsible for setting children's boundaries. So I really think that the next wave of well-being has to be focused on conscious parenting, setting healthy boundaries for your children, always focusing on raising their level of self-esteem and helping your children figure out what are, why are they here in the world and how they can set healthy boundaries for themselves so that as they eventually become adults, they can use their full potential to make a contribution to their world. Do you come from the school of thought that any disease can be healed? For someone who might be watching this who's like, I have this, and it's a really strong label that they've been put upon themselves or someone has put upon them, what would you tell them? Well, you know, one of my uh, cynical biology friends, when I asked the definition of life, said it's a sexually transmitted incurable disease. Um, so ultimately, you know, we know now that I think uh, a person has been documented to live to 118 years of age, according to Ayurveda, the ancient system of medicine from India we should be able to live to be 120. So eventually we're gonna let these molecules go back to the collective body. Um, but I do think that every disease has the possibility of healing. And healing doesn't necessarily mean curing. Healing can mean certainly spontaneous remission from a cancer, but it can also mean creating a new equilibrium so that people exceed their, their prognosis way beyond what their doctors may have thought was possible. We certainly see that every day at the Chopra Center. Um, but I think there are a lot of conditions that, that people take lots of medications for on a daily basis that can be healed if people are willing to look beyond the molecules to the, to the mind and to the, and to the heart. In your book, you talk about five steps to healing. Can you walk us through those? Yes, you know, I've been studying this ancient system of health from India. It's a 5,000-year-old system, Ayurveda, and they have this very elegant detoxification program, which is about the physical body. And so there's five steps. There's preparing for the detoxification. There's the identification of what it is that's toxic. There's the process of mobilizing the toxicity. There's the process of eliminating the toxicity. And now that the system is less toxic, then there's this rejuvenation. And so I've actually applied that, that sequence to the emotional toxicity. You know, in, in Ayurveda, there's this really interesting concept known as agni, which means fire. The English word ignite or ignition comes from the Sanskrit root agni. And the idea is that we have this kind of metaphorical fire, and that when the fire is burning brightly, Whatever we feed the fire, whatever we hear, whatever, however we're touched, whatever we see, whatever we taste, whatever we smell, we can cook that experience, extracting what's nourishing and then eliminating what's not. But if the fire is weak or what we're putting on the fire, the experience is too powerful, then we don't fully metabolize that experience and we have a residue, a toxic residue. The word in Sanskrit is ama. So we can think of that on a physical level. If you eat too much cholesterol or saturated fat-rich foods, 
you deposit that in your blood vessels and you get a heart attack or stroke. But I think that most people carry a lot of emotional ama, which means emotional experiences from the past exceeded our capacity to fully metabolize them, so we're carrying that residue. What do you think are the most toxic emotions people are carrying? Like if you said you must eliminate guilt or anger or unforgiveness, which ones do you think they are? Yeah, I, I think regret is the most painful emotion. You know, regret is, oh, you know, why did I do that or why didn't I do that? And what, what I think is helpful for people who are carrying regret is to recognize that if, if we can't look back at our life and say, oh, if I only knew then what I know now, I would have done things differently, then there hasn't been any growth. There hasn't been any learning. So rather than seeing, oh, why did I do that or why didn't I do that, we should look back at our past, look at where we are now and say, wow, as a result of that perhaps expensive lesson, I'm a different person that I can now make better choices moving forward. Well, we're, I'm very glad we chose to have you here on the show. I'm very David, glad to be here. The, the book is Free to Love, Free to Heal. Highly recommend it. Uh, get it for yourself, get it for a loved one, anyone you know who's struggling maybe with an emotional issue, physical challenge. Uh, for more information about David's work, please um, feel free to visit his website, freetolove.com. Thanks for listening. For more interesting, inspiring interviews, please be sure to visit us on the web at changenation.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ariane, and I'm here with Dr. David Simon, world-renowned health, mind, body physician, and also the doctor who runs Deepak Chopra Center. I'm gonna ask him some of our signature questions about change and transformation. So David, what is the belief that you go to in times of change and transition in your own life? I think it's the recognition that everything is always changing. And if we can keep breathing through it, we'll see that something that may look challenging at one phase is almost always incubating something magnificent to come from it. So even though I may be struggling or suffering with it, I hold on to that belief that something good is going to come from this. You're what we call a fellow change optimist. <laughs> what is the hardest change that you've ever had to get through? Hmm. Um, actually, when I shifted my entire professional career, everything in my life shifted. So I was chief of staff of a hospital. I um, had a family at that time. I was a practicing neurologist with a very busy practice. And then Deepak and I decided to create the Chopra Center and everything in my life shifted. And it was like being caught up in a tidal wave. I wasn't really sure where it was gonna land me and I really didn't have a choice at that time except to just keep my head above water. Um, but I learned a tremendous amount about letting go. Sometimes you let go and sometimes it's taken away, but in any case, what's core to your being ends up persisting and surviving and ultimately giving rise to some new incarnation. Tell us a bit about couple of the best changes that you have initiated, you have actually made, as opposed to life has sort of taken you on that journey? Um, I'm actually in a good change right now, which is um, despite the fact that at various times of my life I've been a pure vegan and other times almost always a vegetarian, I have this inherited cholesterol issue. So recently I went for a uh, life insurance examination and they told me that my cholesterol was still high. And so I've decided that right now I am on a, the strictest, purest diet that I've been on since probably uh, high school. 
And I realized that all the things that I kind of just gently became addicted to, you know, sweets and my coffee and all those other things, it's like all it takes is about 24 hours of realizing that you don't need those things. And suddenly there's a sense of freedom that, that I, I'm enjoying, actually. Even in my deprivation, I'm enjoying my freedom. <laughs> in the realm of dietary change, just given all your background and all the thousands of patients that you've seen, what, what is the one thing that we have to eliminate, either from what we eat or what we drink? Um, obsession. I mean, no matter what the diet is, if a person is obsessed about it, it probably has more harm than anything in particular that they're eating. So, you know, the diet that I think in most situations is the most balanced is this Ayurvedic diet, which says it's not about what you don't eat. So if you're walking throughout the day saying, I'm not eating this, I'm not eating that, I'm not eating this, that ties you up in all these knots. But it's really about making certain that you have healthy choices from all these different categories. And then it's balanced. You know, the human species is the only species that has to read books or take go to lectures or analyze the nutritional content of the food because we've so disconnected ourselves from our bodies. Koala bears don't need lessons on food and pandas don't need it and tigers don't need it. So what I find is that when people feel that their life is not in their control when they've been diagnosed with a new illness, they often start focusing on their diet, which to a certain degree can be a good thing, but then when they start creating a sense of anxiety over it or ultra control, it actually ends up negating the benefits. What are some changes that you would like to see happen in the world of health medicine, healthcare? It's a broad question for a doctor. Well, you know, I have, I have um, an older son and then two young daughters, and I'd really like to see a world that deserves my children, which right now I don't really think it does deserve my children. And I think it's because the prevailing conversation for decades now has really been focusing on how people are different from each other. And I think the best thing we can do for our personal health, for our community health, for our world health, is to change that conversation to how, what's that underlying unity. So that applies not only to how homo sapiens treat each other, but I really think we have to, be rec we have to recognize that we share this very delicate, beautiful spaceship, and we have to start treating other animals and other members of our ecosystem with that similar level of reverence and then I think there can be personal and planetary health. What are some changes you would still like to try, initiate, have happen in your own life? I'm working on and looking forward to manifesting conscious communities. You know, I think that community is something that a lot of people are really hungering for these days. And we're getting a taste of it through the internet, through online services, but I you know, the best we can hope for is two senses, you know, sound and, and sight. I think that there's something really magical that happens when people committed to a path of well-being, of spirituality, of consciousness, get together, hang out together, do yoga together, meditate together, eat together. So uh, that's what I'm looking forward to, co-creating co with a number of great people, these kind of conscious communities around the planet. Talking about great people, who do you see as really being a change leader that's living today? That's someone who you really feel people either need to rally behind or support or engage with or read or... Who, who do you see? Well, I think we're seeing 
green sprouts in a lot of different places. I mean, the people that, that I engage with and find very nurturing and um, enthusiasm generating, you know, the positive optimists that I think you mentioned, um, are people like uh, my good friend and partner Deepak Chopra, Debbie Ford, one of the great shadow workers on the planet, Wayne Dyer, who I think has a way of framing this conversation uh, in a vocabulary that reaches a very wide audience. Marianne Williamson is a good friend of mine and someone who I think is such a powerful um, model for women on We've this planet. We've been lucky to have most of the people you've just talked about on our show. So yeah, these are, these are, these these are great people. And a lot of people who aren't necessarily so much in the spotlight. I actually think Oprah is one of the f foremost change um, catalysts on our society, in our society. And I think our president, you know, f is fortunately reflecting this collective conscious intention towards uh, evolutionary change. Just change that you'd like to see in the country. Well, um, I feel compassion for this, for the effects that this economic challenge is having on people's life. I hope that we'll use it to reevaluate, you know, our choices, you know, from this kind of consumptive mindset. You know, the most common word that people use to describe Americans is consumers. And I think that what this, what this setback is teaching us is that consumption doesn't make people happy and it actually depletes our environment. So I'm hopeful that the next wave that comes out of these ashes is really a more authentic one dedicated towards well-being, towards community, towards knowledge, towards understanding. Um, so I, I hope that we're not just going to get back to, okay, let's all now make as much money as possible, get the biggest house and the next car, but really say what are the important changes that we want to make for ourselves and again to create a planet that's worthy of our kids. Thank you so much, David. What a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank David's you. book is Free to Love, Free to Heal. His website is freetolove.com. Be sure to find out more about his uh, beautiful work. Thank you. Thank you.